0: On Friday, many of you will know that we uh, had the funeral for Ross Green. Uh, Much loved, both member of congregation and then minister of this very congregation. And it was a wonderful celebration of the gospel, uh, as it was of the man who pointed to Jesus. And after the service, which I had uh, dressed up for wearing my clerical collar, much to the shock of many people including the bishop, who was somewhat put out in a good way, uh, I decided to get some dinner and catch up with my family. So I thought, I'm going to walk down Ligon Street with my collar on and see what happens. Uh, and I got to Faraday Street after a few strange stares, and there was a woman next to me uh, on the phone who had obviously imbibed a couple of Chardonnays, just enough to show signs of a subtle mood change, if you catch my drift. And she was speaking loudly on her phone Uh, trying to give someone directions on where she was standing in order to get picked up. And it became clear throughout the conversation, which I could hear one side of, that she was getting increasingly angry. And then she hung up and said in a very, very loud voice, Oh, bother! Except it wasn't the word bother. It was a word which, of course, is not appropriate to repeat in church. She then looked to her left to see me standing there with a just a subtle smile on my face. And she panicked. Her eyes went wide and she mumbled a half-hearted, half-drunken apology and ran up the road. Now, that that kind of summarises, I think, uh, our culture's understanding, to some extent, of Christianity. There's a big disconnect uh, between what people think Christianity is about and what it's actually about. Uh, Christendom is dead. Australia is not really a Christian country, but rather a country with a Christian heritage that's... That's just embarrassed enough when it swears in front of a priest, but that's about it. That's about as most or close to a religious experience that most people have on the streets of Carlton. This, of course, my little incident is not uh, out there. Um, The stats show that the churches have been declining one half since 1960. Uh, Back then, about 44% of Australians went to church once a month. Now it's uh, about 15%. Uh, eight just eight percent of people who claim to be Christians attend church once a month and so you, there might be some data in our census that says people claim to be Christians they, they, they tick the box but they don't actually follow through with any kind of meaningful action uh, where we worship and most of us live and many of us work is the inner city of Melbourne which is the most irreligious part of the most irreligious city in Australia as I've said before this is not the Bible belt, this is the pagan pocket that we come together and worship God in. Uh, no religion in our area was 55% in the last census. It's the highest anywhere in Australia, 55%. Uh, Anglicans did not make even the top, five, uh, the top six religions that come afterwards. Uh, both Islam and Buddhism rank higher than Anglican. Now, by the way, of course, Anglicans are not the only Christians. We need to be very, very clear on that. But it's just not part of our culture. Yet our church's mission is God's mission to take the gospel to those who live around us and those we work with and our family and friends. So why has it become so hard? Well, I think there are possibly three reasons and we could probably spend some more time discussing in that the survey was interesting to hear what people thought Uh, I think there is a a rising immigration from non-Christian countries, which means uh, they bring, uh, and we're all positive about people coming to our country, but it means they've brought a non-Christian worldview, perhaps. They might be uh, Buddhist or Hindu or or Muslim. Uh, There's a rising in cultural secularism, uh, and there's a growing distrust, perhaps understandably, of institutions like churches, and often for very good reasons. And that means that you may well find it hard in your workplace or where you study not just to say look i'm a christian but what what do you do with that how do you then share the gospel it's hard enough just to be a christian let alone to find a really positive and engaging and a helpful way to engage with people but we are called not just to be a community of love we are called as a church to be a community that proclaims the gospel of god's love In other words, we can't selfishly keep the love just for ourselves. We need to declare God's love to those around us. So how do we as a church then proclaim the gospel, the good news of God's love to a city that is fragmented and even at times hostile to the church? A city that is indeed beautiful, but at the same time broken. Well, I've got uh, uh, four, four things that I want to highlight that I think that would help us do that well. And they're picking up from the way Paul engages with the city uh, of uh, of Athens. The first one is we need to be lizards and frogs. We need to be lizards and frogs. I'll explain what I mean by blank looks on your face. That's okay. Lizards and frogs. Secondly, we need to have open eyes and open ears. So, lizards and frogs, open eyes, open ears. Thirdly, we need to engage our heart as well as our brain and fourthly we need to speak carefully and with clarity with clarity so they're the four things firstly we need to be lizards and frogs uh, Lee Yi was a speaker at a, a conference in Lausanne which is an evangelism conference uh, and he said that most of our churches are frog churches did you know that what, what he meant by that was, uh, what frogs do is, uh, I've been informed by biologists, uh, they sit and they wait for the food to come to them. That's why they have those really awkward long tongues, right? The fly comes along, bloop, that's, that's a frog church. Come, come to us, come and fit in, come and see how we work. Uh, that's not a bad thing, by the way, that's, that's how frogs get fed. But if we're going to be a church that seeks to promote and preach the gospel. We need to be a lizard church as well as a frog church. Now, lizards get their food quite differently. They don't stay in one place. They go out and they chase down the tasty grubs and ants. Right, that's what they do, go and get it. In other words, lizards go and frogs stay. And so as a church, we need to be a church that doesn't just stay here quietly and peacefully, but seeks to go to those around us. To be lizards, to go and take the good news to those whom we work with and those who we play our sport with and those who we study with and those who we spend time with. And that, of course, is at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? God so loved the world that he kept his only son in the the glorious realms of heaven. John 3:16, arguably the most famous verse in Scripture, "God so loved the world that He gave." Like Christ comes to earth, leaves the glorious throne of heaven to save a sinful and broken people. The gospel is the gospel of a Jesus who comes." And the words of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, what does, what does Jesus say? Does he say, "Stay therefore and make disciples? Be frogs and make disciples. He says, go, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There's an impetus there, isn't there? And that's what Paul does, by the way, in Acts 17. He goes to the city of Athens, verse 15. But he doesn't just go geographically, like he does, but he actually goes culturally. What I mean by that is he goes to where the people are, He wants to find out and build relationships and understand them. And so he goes to the synagogue. He goes to the marketplaces. He goes where the people are. And so if we are to be a church that promotes and proclaims the gospel, we do need to be attractional and be a place where people are warmly welcomed and engaged and loved as they come through those wonderful glass doors. But we also, at the same time, need to be a church where we are willing to go where people are. We need to go. We can't just wait. We need to go to our neighbours and our workplaces and our friends and our communities and our city and our world. That's part of our vision as a church, right? To be a church for the whole person, the whole community, well, we've got to go in there, the whole city, well, we've got to go there and the whole world. Well, we want to keep sending people there as well. So we need to be frogs, And lizards secondly we need to have our eyes and ears open in verse 16 notice that Paul goes to Athens and he sees that it's full of idols Uh, the estimates are that there were 30,000 idols in the city at this time that's a lot of idols Uh, there was a saying at the time uh, it was easier to find in God in Athens than to find a good man uh, the gods at this time are very geographically based, so there are gods of different areas, a bit like football teams. Uh, and in notice in verse 23, there was this idol to an unknown god. And there's a reason to this which we can actually relate to. Uh, there had been a mysterious plague. We know what our, our plague was less mysterious. Uh, there was a plague that had swept through Athens and there were all sorts of conspiracy theories about where it came from. Uh, all sorts of cures were tried, maybe... Uh, Bleach, I'm not sure what they had in ancient uh, ancient Athens. Uh, Nothing worked. And so people assumed that one of the many gods of the city was angry, and that is why this plague had come. But the problem is with 30,000 idols, how do you know which god you've offended? Uh, Thousands of deities. So these citizens did what every business does when it's out of ideas they hired a consultant. Uh, this consultant was a prophet from the island of Crete and he concluded, this is this is brilliant, that this plague was the handiwork of an unknown god, which was their original thought, by the way, and then charged them lots of money. Uh, he ordered that uh, a flock of hungry sheep be set forth over the city and wherever the, the sheep stopped to eat some yummy grass, that was where you would sacrifice to the god of that area. And some places they knew where the God was, and so they would sacrifice to a known God. But there were places where they didn't know who the God was, and so they would erect an idol that says, to an unknown God and sacrifice the sheep there. That's why there are these places in Athens that Paul sees. Notice that Paul goes and, and he looks and listens to what is happening in this city before he opens his mouth. Carefully and humbly trying to understand the people he's trying to reach. And we need to do the same. To look and listen carefully to the people that we live with and that we work with. Before we blurt something out, have we understood the people we're trying to reach? Have we come with humility Well, how do we do this? There there aren't kind of idols to unknown gods around Melbourne. But there are so many different ways. You will have your own uh, wonderful insights and maybe you could share that uh, over morning tea. How do we listen and see better? Uh, There's some really kind of big picture kind of things. You can see what's in the media, what issues sit uh, in the top half of your, your news scrolling because they're the ones that people think are important. And what's the issue behind it is it injustice what's the thing that our culture is wrestling with Uh, what shows are popular on our streaming networks (laughs) because they tell you about what people are interested in too are they trying to escape from reality or they intrigued Uh, a really amazing thing is just listen to as many different people that you can talk with if you're into talking with people Uh, Or social media. Social media is amazing. It's uh, it's the new confessional where people will share amazing things online that they will never tell their best friend, but are happy to tell a million people they had never met, be it angry or sad or, or heartfelt. What are people complaining about? What are they longing for? I think as we look through social media, we see a deep loneliness in so many people. A deep desire to to, to belong, to feel feel seen, to feel understood. They're isolated and exhausted. Imagine how we can share the gospel and, and show how beautiful it is, the community of God's people. So we need to be frogs and lizards. We need to look and listen with humility to understand and love those around us. And thirdly, we need to engage our hearts as well as our minds. In other words, we need to be motivated from from a genuine sense of love for people. See, not only does love sit at the heart of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love sits at the heart of the gospel for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's that's God's motivation for sending Jesus, for the gospel. It's love. And therefore, it must be at the heart of our motivation as well that it's because we love people desperately that we can't help but share the good news of God's love for them. It's not another mark to say, oh, I've converted somebody else. It's not arrogant, I'm right, you're wrong. It's God's love is astounding. And and I love you, and I don't want you to miss out on this most beautiful and amazing thing. And we see Paul do this as well. Verse 16, he's waiting in Athens, and what was he, it says? He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And that little phrase there, greatly distressed. It means that his spirit was deeply provoked and aroused and moved. He's, he's not just a bit put out. This, the language there is of a strong emotional response. It's, and it's not just revile at the idols. It's a deep love and compassion for the people. In Luke 19, 41, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and what does he do? He weeps, because so many do not know who he is. So deep and heavy is his heart with love for those who don't know him, that he weeps. See, theology is not separated from love. We are told to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul, and all our strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so when you see Melbourne, when you see your work colleagues, are you prompted by love? Because those who love, those who feel things do things. Uh, When you're passionate about something, you are much more likely to do something about it. This is why I yell at the TV I know they can't hear me, but I yell at the TV when watching football and not watching The Bachelor. Well, I usually yell, turn it off, but you know what I'm saying, right? Why do you get emotionally invested in something? It's because you care about it. Sam was sharing that he's lost his voice because he went to a certain football match, and I won't say who won or lost. Uh, sadly, Sam knows. He's shaking his head, so it's obviously lost. Um, but his voice is hoarse because he cares. He likes That's what you do, right? See, the promotion of the gospel is the result of a deep passion and love for the Lord Jesus and for those who do not know him yet. So the question we must ask ourselves is, are we passionate? Do we genuinely love people? Or are we just indifferent? The world can just get on and do whatever it wants. We've got our safe little church. Because if you're not passionate... You're not seeing the world the way God sees the world. For God so loved the world. How passionate is is the Lord God? He sends his son to die for it. That is passionate love. That is deep concern. And so that must be our deep concern as well. A love for those who do not know Jesus yet. That prompts us and drags us into action because we love Jesus and we're just desperate for people to know Him too. So we're lizards and frogs. Second one, you want to remember? Yep, uh, vague mumbling's correct. Yes. <laughs> Thirdly, heart right love. Uh, fourthly, speak with clarity and compassion. Uh, what Paul does when he, he finally opens his mouth uh, is he reaches out and explains the gospel to them, but he doesn't sell out. He doesn't kind of compromise the truths of the gospel. He says it in a way they understand, even if they disagree. But the fancy word for that is contextualization. That's making the truths of the gospel easy to understand, as opposed to syncretism, which is where you make the truths of the gospel easier to believe by taking out the awkward bits. He's not making it easy to believe he's making it easy to understand it's a clarity and we too need to do the same thing we need to think carefully about the words and the language that we use not to compromise the truth no but to use words and understanding and ideas that people understand if you were to say if i was to say to that woman who swore at me are you saved sister by the blood of the lamb well, she'd probably be a little bit freaked out. Uh, you and I might know what, what we mean, but those words would be so foreign to her, she wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. Am I talking about a new restaurant? What, what are you talking about here? And, and Paul does this. He debates with the Epicureans and the Stoics uh, about Jesus uh, uh, at the Areopagus. The Epicureans are kind of like the FOMO people. They've got fear of, fear of missing out. Their goals in life are pleasure and living the best life. And the Stoics are kind of like the ancient Jordan Petersons. Uh, Stoics, you know, virtue, get the rules right. Uh, and they call him a babbler, and so they take him to the Areopagus, because the Areopagus was the place where you could introduce a new idea into society. It was not like a cultural gate. If you have a new idea, it's got to go through the Areopagus. And if you wanted to start a new religion or philosophy in, in uh uh, in Athens, you had to run it by the Athenian court, and they just loved talking about new ideas all day long. It was kind of like the Facebook and Twitter of the ancient world—like ideas banging around, people saying you're an idiot, uh, or, or you're, that's a great idea. In other words, the court was the place that judges a religion or an idea. But Paul doesn't let the Athenian court. Judge his teaching about Jesus. In fact, the opposite. In verse 31, notice, he tells them that they're going to be judged by Jesus. He flips the whole thing over, which we kind of miss because we don't get that, that kind of culture of Athens. He says, for he, that is God, has had a day where he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So he uses that idea and he, and he flips it around. Now, the reason why they set up this Athenian court was they had a genuine belief that there was no resurrection, you just died and that was it. Uh, And so they had this idea that when Apollo uh, inaugurated the court, he had said, when a man dies, his blood is spilled on the ground and there is no resurrection. They're kind of overt about it. And therefore, because there's no final judgment after death, you had to judge everything before death to make sure it was right. That's why they had this court of justice. And this is why Paul makes the resurrection of Jesus so important. He wants to to challenge their ideas. He says, not only is Jesus the ultimate judge, not just of the Athenian court, but of the whole world, he's also the resurrected Lord. So he challenges them. He doesn't hold back the things that they would find difficult. But at the same time, he does it in a way they'd understand. He, He reaches out to them with their words. He starts with the phrase, men of Athens. That's how Aristotle began his lectures in Athens 300 years before. They would know exactly what he was saying at that point. He quotes their philosophers and, he, and their poets to them, who are their kind of rock stars and their celebrities. Uh, in verse 28, he quotes the pagan poet, uh, Aratus, who's kind of like the Ed Sheeran of ancient Greece, uh, famous, uh, we are his offspring. And what's interesting is you look through the book of Acts, which we're going to do next week. So I'm kind of setting it up for for next week. Uh, When Paul is in a scriptural context, what I mean is when he's in a synagogue with Jewish people, what he will do is he will argue about Jesus from the scriptures and say, this is how Jesus fulfills the scriptures. But when he's in a non-scriptural context like Athens, he will argue to the scriptures and say this is what you believe let me show you as i open the scriptures how jesus fulfills and challenges your view he brings them to the scriptures now by the way in athens this is more how he engages in to start your new religion you needed to have three things needed some land you needed a temple and an annual feast they were the kind of ticker box to get council approval for your religion but notice jesus Uh, Sorry, Paul uses those ideas to challenge them once again in verse 24. He says, Look, Jesus doesn't need land. He is God who made the world and everything in it. (laughs) Just a small bit of land. Hang on a second, guys. He's got it all. He doesn't need a temple. Verse 24, since Jesus is the Lord of heaven, he doesn't need to live in man made temples. And Paul says, look, Jesus doesn't need an annual feast. Verse 25, no human hands can serve his needs. He has no need. He's God, for crying out loud. In fact, Jesus satisfies our need. So he uses their ideas and structures, and he plugs the gospel in and shows actually how Jesus is better. He takes their rough idea that there is a creator, and using their ideas, and he shows them, this is how Jesus is more beautiful, and more fulfilling, and more perfect, And he tells them that they need to repent and believe. Doesn't shy away. Follow this Jesus. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, as a church, we do not need to make the good news of Jesus more relevant. We don't need to make it more relevant. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus are the most relevant events there are. They are the most life changing events there are. We just need to get better at explaining how. The gospel is extraordinary. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That is a profound start. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Astonishing. And he does that through his son dying for us and being raised to life to defeat death is there any better news? Extraordinary news. So how do we get better at doing it? How do we get better at explaining how good and beautiful this news is? Let me give uh, five quick ideas, because I know you've got great ideas, and I'm really keen to hear from you, and you guys should chat and talk in your small groups about how you can do it. Uh, Firstly, are we praying about it? Do you have a list of people that you love and you're just desperate for them to know Jesus love? When people become Christians, I often ask them, do you have a member of your family or a close friend who's a Christian? And more often than not, the answer is, oh yeah, my, my grandma, she used to go to church regularly. And I think it was the faithful prayers of that grandma for her grandson for 20 or 30 years that prompted this change of heart? Who are you praying for? I think, secondly, we need to be better at sharing our stories. And I think a really easy way to do this is just to share your story, rather than have some necessary elaborate uh, kind of gospel presentation. They're good, by the way, they're really good. But an easy one to do is, what's your story? How did you become a Christian? How did it change your life? Why why are you still a Christian? That's an interesting question, right? Um, People are after those authentic understanding of Christianity. It's not just true. It works. It's authentic. Um, It's actually one of the the, the research shows it's one of the greatest attraction for non-Christians is by observing Christians who live out and share a genuine faith. Share the things that you struggle with. Share the beauty of of going to a funeral for a Christian brother, where there is deep sadness but also deep hope. That is a foreign idea for so many people. 61% of non-Christians said they were attracted by Christians living out their life and sharing it authentically. What's your story? Thirdly, um, there were opportunities within our church and other organisations to just have a, the gospel explained really clearly in a structured way. We do Christianity Explored regularly at St. Jude. In fact, we're running it right now, every Tuesday night. Uh, every time I've done the course, people have become Christians, every time. And At the moment, we're, we're doing it, and, and there's someone who is not a Christian but cannot stop reading the Bible. It's funny. I like we're trying to get the person to talk, and oh, I've got. To need to, I need to read some more. I need to find out who this Jesus is. I think last year we had eight people become Christians through that. We run that regularly because we want to give a place for you to invite, and you can come along. And um, if you feel anxious, that's okay. It's a pretty chill course. We eat nice, lots of sugar-based food. Uh, It's open, people can ask any questions. It's non threatening, but it shows the love of Jesus as we open the Word. Take take those opportunities, invite family and friends. Um, I think we need to get better at helping each other work out how to do all of this well in the different contexts we're in, in our workplaces, in our places of study. How do we promote the gospel in in our lives with a whether you're a boss or whether you're you're not a boss, how do you live out in a way that points to Jesus and that prompts people to ask questions? Because I think uh, in generations past, being a Christian in your workplace was less awkward or confronting. And once again, our survey data show that that was one of the key places people want equipping it. So we we need to kind of get together and talk about that. Not to be afraid to share the gospel because we love people, but do it in a way that uses words and concepts and ideas. And that's, that's got to be an ongoing conversation as a church. I think, fifthly, we need to keep being a church that promotes the gospel by raising up gospel leaders. Uh, this church, for example, has, I think, almost 20 global mission partners. People have been sent, like the lizards that they are, please don't tell me that, that that's a good thing by the way that sounds like a horrible thing uh, to take the gospel to different parts of australia and the world 20 mission groups there is a crying need for more gospel workers in our city leaders who will have churches which are, are, are not just communities of love but communities that preach the love of christ And there are so many churches that are desperate, full of lovely, delightful Christian people, but in desperate need of a shepherd to guide them and to lead that charge of promoting the gospel. Uh, And Melbourne has uh, a history of importing church leaders. I don't know if you know that. It's not just a St Jude's thing, it's a Melbourne thing. Uh, And so my idea is that we need to have our church leaders be like our trams, We've seen our trams that go past, and they have a big sign that it that says, Made in Melbourne for Melbourne. I'd love to get to get stickers to put on our trainees and our students. You know. It'd be a bit awkward, right? That's my kind of vision, right? Made in Melbourne. People who are from this beautiful city, this, this lovely city, this amazing city, raised up to serve this city and beyond. Because there are... I think 36 parishes at the moment, just the Anglicans, who need a minister, who need someone to to serve the people there and to take the gospel. There's a million people moving into the west of Melbourne. Where's the church? How's the gospel going to reach there? And there's people live there and have a church to kind of do. There's so much opportunity for us as a church. So we have our leaders in training for our youth. We have our equip program, trainees. We have our assistant ministers. We have lay people working in industry and and, and academia to go and promote the gospel to this city. Because, brothers and sisters, St. Jude cannot be a church that ignores this world. Community was a really big value that this church has, and that's a beautiful thing. One of the dangers is it means we can get so inwardly focused and rightly enjoy... You're lovely people, right? Enjoy each other's company. Go pick some olives. That was an amazing thing yesterday. Like there's so many wonderful things that we need to keep doing, but that cannot stop us from looking outwards as well. We need to be a church that loves this world as much as God loves this world. So much so that we cannot help but share the good news of his love. Let me pray that we would do that for God's glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for that powerful message in John 3.16. That you love this world so much that you gave your one and only son. Father, may we be a church that is not just a place where people can come and see your love, but may we go to our workplaces and beyond in our study and beyond to share and show the love of Christ. May we have open eyes and ears to humbly hear where people are at. May you engage our hearts that we may love them as you love them and may we speak with gospel clarity, proclaiming that great news that Jesus has come, died and been raised again for our salvation and for your glory. And may that just infuse every part of our church for your glory, we pray. Amen.